Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders and investors to help you scale a business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. His name is Kenny, uh, the founder of Genial Care. Kenny, welcome to the show. Mike, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You have an amazing story, and uh, you are also an American building a business in Latam, more, more specifically in, in Brazil. Uh, in a previous episode, we had one of your angel investors on the show, um, Ben from, from Give also, and now uh, at Camino. And uh, so I, I hope that with just this introduction, I created a lot of uh, expectation about what you will share uh, next. So let's start from the beginning. Who is Kenny from the ones who didn't have the opportunity to meet you yet? Uh, and uh, what is the impact that you are that you are doing in the world? And I know it's it's huge. That's quite a buildup. I hope I can. <laughs> I hope I can meet those expectations. So let me start from the beginning, Mike. Um, so I, as you said, I'm from the United States. I I come from a pretty traditional American family, upper middle class from the East Coast, uh, born and bred in, in New Jersey. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always sort of start my story by telling a, a part which is very important in that, you know, v- from a very early on, very early age, I had someone in a, gr- a group of people really bet on my potential. And I really needed it because I was about four years old and I was completely nonverbal. So I understood everything but I had no uh, communication abilities from a spoken uh, word point of view. So much so that one day my school, you know, the local school called my parents and said, Hey, what we don't think Kenny is ready to go to mainstream preschool or mainstream kindergarten. So uh, I started uh, for the first several years of my school age years uh, in special education. And so, you know, my classmates had um, cerebral palsy, autism, uh, a number of developmental conditions. And, uh, and there I was, you know, with um, a, a severe amount of difficulty from a speech point of view. But that was the absolute greatest thing that could have happened to me because I met this uh, woman named Barbara Rosen, who is just an incredible human being. She's a speech language pathologist, and she literally sat down with me every single day, Mike, and taught me how to talk. And, 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 you know, if it wasn't for her, you know, I'm not quite sure where my educational trajectory would have gone. And, and so, you know, after working with her for three or four years, I then, you know, was able to be quote unquote mainstreamed. I, I made this leap from you know the special ed classroom to the honors classroom, uh, and, and and ten years later, you know, I'm graduating high school and I'm and I'm giving a speech, and I have the opportunity to name my most impactful teacher uh, from my elementary school years, and of course, I, I mean Barbara, and yeah. uh, you know she comes up on the stage and accepts the an award, and, and we're all crying, and it's very emotional, and. You know, I share that, you know, not to compare me to children with, you know, other, even, you know, much more severe developmental conditions, Mm -hmm. but really just to highlight the fact that it was just so crucial for me to have that early intervention from someone who knew what they were doing um, and to have the right intervention at the right time. And, you know, we live in a world today, Mike, where over 99% of children uh, do not receive the appropriate intervention at the right time that they need. Um, right. And so, you know, we'll, we'll talk a bit about Genial, but that's very much a founding principle behind why Genial exists to ensure that that doesn't happen and that all children uh, can and, and deserve to reach their full potential. What, uh, of course, I, I know your story, but it's it's always amazing to listen it one more time because it's it really shows the first the, the impact that one single person can have in our lives. Uh, and as you said, having some it 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 completely changes the trajectory of your life to have that support uh, at at the right time. 
Uh, and also the importance of also having amazing healthcare professionals that love what they do, uh, supporting patients and, and people that need uh, help to go through their, their conditions and, uh, and get on the other side uh, of, um, uh, of, of the path, right? So of the way. So uh, with that, let, let's go into, of course, everyone is, is super curious now to, to know uh, how it's inspired you to start up uh, Genial in Portuguese. I think in English, you are native, I'm not uh, genial uh, care, but as you are focused on the Brazilian market, uh, Genial and not genial for the ones who are, uh, of course, listening from, from Europe and, and, and the US and who don't speak uh, Portuguese. So, genial yeah. care. <laughs> That's great. So, um, yeah. So I'll I'll start sharing, the, you know, the genial story by kind of picking up where I left off for my personal uh, story. So, um, you know, uh, I I go to college. Uh, I graduate college. I, I go off and start my career. I actually start my career uh, on Wall Street. So I was, you know, I did investment banking later an investor in, in private equity. I worked at General Atlantic, which is a, a fairly well-known, you know, growth equity firm uh, in New York of City and, yeah. and around the world. And I was in their healthcare group. And that was just a tremendous professional school for me. I mean, I had incredible mentors there. Uh, Rob Vorhoff is the global head of healthcare there. Brandon Kearns is a, uh, is, uh, is a friend and also mentor, Martina Scobari, who's very well known in, in Latin America. He's now the kind of, he's running the place at GA nowadays. And he's a guy who I've gotten to know uh, as well and worked with. And at GA, uh, that was a very formative experience on a number of levels. One being just this education in the healthcare world and, and uh, the incentives and how complicated it is and just what it takes to build a business in right. the health space. Of course, in the U.S. context, which is different from Latin America, which we can <laughs> talk about. Um, and then also, it was an opportunity for me to see from a totally different lens a bit of the issues that I went through uh, as a child 30 years prior. So we became very interested in this question of, you know, what technology or, or what uh care models are out there that can work with uh, not just uh, adults, but also children with kind of chronic conditions. And so we made a number of investments at GA around this theme. And one of them was focused on children uh, with autism. And it was an amazing kind of, you know, closing the circle moment for me because I saw firsthand a lot of what I saw as a child, you know, that uh, or what I experienced as a child, you know, the vast majority of children don't have access to quality care. Um, this is in the United States, which is, of course, you know, multiple levels of magnitude more advanced than much of the rest of the world on this question. And so this got me thinking, you know, there is a huge issue here. There's a huge uh, problem to address. There's a huge amount of impact to be had. Mm -hmm. um, and that got me thinking that I wanted to uh, leave my comfortable seat as an investor and, and become an entrepreneur. Right. So uh, this is around 2017. So I, I, I decided to uh, leave GA, uh, become an entrepreneur or, or, or start down the path of entrepreneurship. Right. And, in and in parallel, I decided to move outside the country. Uh, partly for personal reasons. My wife is Brazilian. That's always a huge factor. That's uh, always a common question. But also because I just saw the global need and, and, and the level of uh, need on, on just a global scale that was, that was necessary. Okay. So I, I ended up moving to Brazil in 2017. That's when I met Ben, uh, who you mentioned. I, I sent... I spent and thanks to Ben for introducing you, by the way. Disclaimer in the middle of the show. <laughs> Ben's Ben's been a very helpful uh, mentor along the way as well for me. And that was my first foray into Brazil and into the world of startups. So I spent a year and a half in Yabolso, had to learn Portuguese uh, from, from scratch. Great experience. Uh, but I always knew that I would, why I was coming here to Brazil. So mm -hmm. uh, 
I came to Brazil to to start this this company with this mission. And so I ended up, you know, leaving Guia Bolso uh, right around 2019, which then set me down the path of of starting Genial uh, in 2020. And that's that's sort of the beginning of, of Genial officially. And, and and you know, our mission, Mike, which is always where we start, is mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that all children can reach their full potential. So what that means today is we are a care network for children with autism focused mm -hmm. on, on Brazil. Um, and in parallel, we're building a, a care network and a platform and, a, and an ecosystem of technology tools mm -hmm. to enable uh, not just superior care, but also much more accessible and much more affordable care uh, for children. Uh, first with autism and in the future, other uh, conditions within the neurodiverse uh, ecosystem. For so, uh, genial children and a genial care. <laughs> for, for, for normal people, that's that's our, everyone is, is genial in a certain way and everyone deserves to, to reach their full potential. I, I love the, the mission. Sorry for highlighting uh, yeah. that and playing a yeah. bit with, with the name of, uh, of your venture. And I, I assume it, it was one of the reasons why you, you named it your venture genial or genial care. Absolutely. And another, another reason why we chose the name Genial is it sort of works as you, as you alluded to in, in all three languages, you know, in the Western hemisphere, Spanish, Portuguese. That's amazing. Yeah. Genial um, as well. Got it. Perfect. <laughs> and then, and then I think the other piece is there's this question of, of genius, right. And, and not genius in maybe the, you know, you know, super smart sense. Right. Uh, that's maybe part of it, but but genius more in the sense of having a transformational impact on generations to come. Uh, right. And you know, one of the things we talk about a lot at, at, at Genial is ninety nine point nine percent of the kids that we're going to serve are not even born yet. Incredible. That's very humbling. Well, when you think about it. Yeah. Over the next 10 years, in just in Brazil, there's a million children. If you're just talking about autism, there's a mm -hmm. million children just in Brazil who are going to be born with autism. And so we ask ourselves, what kind of world are those children going to find? Are they going to find a world in which they can reach their full potential or the world in which they live in today, which is not, not always that? And so there's also this element of uh, it's a little bit multi-layered the, the, the word yeah. genial, but we want to bring that element to of thinking long term thinking in the future of generations to come all those elements great job with with the naming which is also an, an important point of course naming without execution uh, is worthless but uh, but definitely having both uh, it's it's an amazing bonus uh, and and Wow, it works in all languages. So very well done. I never thought about it when when I saw the. Uh, of course, I, I did immediately the and Eva even pronounced it in English. Uh, but then I forgot that in the Spanish speaking side of Latam, it's also genial. Uh, I also speak uh, Spanish, so <laughs> or portuñol as as we like to to say nice. uh, awesome i do not have i do not have that ability uh maybe one day <laughs> so that the, the only thing is that at the end of the day sometimes you feel that you don't speak any language well anymore so you don't speak very very good english neither very good portuguese neither very good spanish but okay, you are able to communicate in, a, in any of those languages and, and have a conversation. Uh, but you don't feel that you are able to express yourself at a full depth um, uh, of, of uh, when you when you only add your native uh, language. I, I imagine for kids who, who learn, who start learning or natively different languages is completely different because I know uh, some of them from new generations in the family and so on that they are able to speak multiple languages. Uh, and so uh, sometimes I, I I look at them. How are you not confusing uh, every? And, and and that's true. Sometimes they mix uh, languages and, and terminologies. But anyway, that's not the purpose of. That's uh, gonna be that's gonna be my my children. So I I've got uh, my wife and I. My wife is Brazilian, and we've got two kids who are true. 
we, we, we've got two kids under two and i always say you know they're always going to they're always going to be making fun of one of us you know either you know my son or daughter are going to be making fun of my <laughs> of my wife's english so you can't yeah. win play with these bilingual kids yeah they, they will be junior from from day one <laughs> so we'll teach the, the parents how to speak in in both languages so and in what stage are our genial uh, genial at, uh, at the moment kenny uh, yeah so genial we are um so we're about two and a half years into mm -hmm. into the story we spent the better part of the first two years really laser focused on that core value prop, which I mentioned at the top, which is, you know, delivering better results at a lower cost. Mm -hmm. That really speaks to having a strong clinical model and having a strong clinical foundation. So actually, contrary to some other startups, we, we spent quite a bit of time not even trying to have a commercial product, not even trying to sell anything because mm -hmm. we knew that if we could figure out this core question, how to deliver better outcomes at lower cost, we would ultimately have a product that uh, is extraordinarily attractive to a whole host of stakeholders, which you've been talking mm -hmm. about. And so the better part of the first two years was really focused on that and a lot of a lot of learning, a lot of taking what we know from the academic literature and applying it to, you know, uh, practical applications here here in Brazil. And then if you look at the past, really nine to ten months has been, you know, the first uh, the first iteration of commercializing that product. And so, Uh, we now have several partnerships with insurance companies, uh, mm -hmm. and we're now in that phase of really hyper growth. Um, so, uh, as you look at you know the next year, one year, two years, um, we're already uh, the market leader uh, even today. Uh, if you're talking about autism care in Brazil, um, and we're really focused on making sure that we solidify that position of market leadership and really. Uh, capture this market and 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 are able to uh just expand all across not just sao paulo but across the entire country with this care model and, and technology platform so to answer your question it's uh you know we've been laser focused on outcomes at a lower cost and now we're mm -hmm. hitting that pace at that rapid growth at that rapid growth stage in terms of uh funding rounds and uh, account etc just for people to kind of understand, have a feeling of where you are also on those sure. milestones, yeah. Sure, so we did, um, we have done multiple funding rounds, uh, the uh, only one of which is public. Uh, so we raised money with right. uh, Canary, uh, which are, who have been terrific partners. I think you've had Isabel on your podcast, if not. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Uh, and they, they backed us when we were nothing more than a PowerPoint back in 2020. And as I said, we've, we've since done uh, other capital uh, other capital raises, which have been very important, which we'll share at some point uh, in the near future. And we've been growing quite a bit. So if in terms of kind of uh, where we are from the headcount point of view, I would say the best way to think about us is we have over 100 care professionals Mm -hmm. who are not, they're not employees necessarily, but right. they're part of our care network. And they're all uh, focused on delivering the Genial care model all across um, our different payer partners. So we have those several insurance partnerships that I mentioned. Um, okay. And those are all part of our care teams that uh, work with the member families that are part of those insurance companies and are sent by those insurance companies. So uh And, and it's been, you know, the last six months have been very exciting from a growth point of view and from a clinical outcomes point of view. Now that we're seeing, uh, we're no longer in the stage where it's, you know, a small, you know, test cohorts. Now it's actually on a much larger scale and, wow. and you know, real heavyweight insurance partners mm -hmm. uh, counting on us. And so it's been exciting to see the results uh, really come in uh, at this level of, of impact. 
I'm sure for, for the ones who are thinking about uh, health tech, there is always this uh, huge question. And, and I think it's great you already added value to the, to the audience in the way that you followed a different path on making sure that you have the foundation right, kind of your, your care not network, the platform, the ecosystem, the methodology to be able to produce better outcomes um, at a better cost. Uh, you, I imagine that during those two years, you also started relationships with insurance, understanding well your go-to-market, how you will scale um, your practice, so really building the foundation right. Uh, and, and that's why sometimes there is also this discussion, especially for second-time founders, should we take a check uh, from a VC in the beginning if you are not, if if we are able to 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 go alone in the in the first months or in the first one year or two years of the venture because then we don't have any pressure to grow we are just validating the model and when we think okay we have the model now it's time to put gas on the tank of course not everyone has this luxury of uh, of, of starting with with the first check and that's why it's amazing to see funds like canary who are able to start investing uh, with with a powerpoint uh, because it's of course democratizes the access of great talent to the VC world, and there, that's not everybody that can spend one or two years without a paycheck or even a small paycheck because that, that's not a big one compared to typically the 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 roles that people are are serving. But um, but anyway, what I wanted to say is, uh, then you you've developed that those relationships, and now you are kind of uh, improving your commercial model and solidifying your commercial model and your go to market model. So uh, a lot of startups have this question about go to market. The ones who are who are listening uh, to you. So what what has been your thought process about understanding what is the go to market? And we even listen a lot of uh, second and third time founders say, go to market first product second of course you need to have a, a great product but if you are not able to crack uh go to market a great product will not solve uh, the problem by itself right yeah it's a great question i will i'll talk about healthcare because it's the area i know a little bit more um and i yeah. think it's i think it's meaningfully <clears throat> different than than other end markets so absolutely i think healthcare can be hard and, and some people, um, some entrepreneurs have had uh, more difficulty, particularly in Latin America, because I think the playbooks from other industries oftentimes um, don't work or don't work in the way that we expect. Um, just to name a few of these of, of these differences, right? In, in healthcare, um, there are just many different stakeholders and and sort of complicated incentives, right? You're not you're typically not uh, selling to the same person who is using your product. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and what I mean there is usually the payer is an insurance company and the user is a member. And that simple distinction uh, is, uh, is an element that I think is still somehow underappreciated. And it's really kind of mm -hmm. the fundamental question to, to, to solve for when, if we're talking about at least a provider-based business in the healthcare space. I think another question is that, you know, direct-to-consumer in healthcare is extraordinarily difficult. You know, uh, mm -hmm. nowadays, you know, I think everyone's very bearish on direct-to-consumer, but these things kind of go in cycles. Um, but I think in healthcare, particularly, direct-to-consumer can be challenging. We've done some direct-to-consumer experimentation mm -hmm. here, as you know, mm -hmm. but it, it is but it is challenging um, for a number of reasons, which we can get into. Um, and then I think, you know, if you look at Latin America specifically, so much of the innovation has been around uh, FinTech. And in FinTech, you have a dynamic where, you know, credit spreads are incredibly high, um, customer acquisition, uh, if you're selling, say, a credit product, it is sometimes uh, fraught with a lot less friction uh, because everyone mm -hmm. wants credit to an extent, right? Um, and so that can justify sometimes uh, a much higher customer acquisition cost, for example. And so all of these things are, are quite different when you try to apply them to the healthcare model, the healthcare space. And we, if you're talking about go-to-market, you know, oftentimes you actually don't 
want to be out there in the market rapidly iterating before you really nail your product. Because if your buyer is a health insurance company, they're going to look at your product with a much different lens, say an early adopter on a consumer product who is maybe willing to accept certain uh, inefficiencies with your products because they're right. just dying to use it. Insurance company buyers is quite different in that sense. So, so there's a lot of difficulties with healthcare. Now, on the flip side, uh, in healthcare, you're talking about huge, huge end markets. Um, and ultimately, if you can build a product that is either better, cheaper, or easier, or ideally mm -hmm. all three, better, right. easier, um, you really can capture those markets um, and, and potentially even build a winner-take-all business. Um, another learning that we've had at, at Genial is I think oftentimes founders will face this question of going deep and narrow <laughs> or going broad and shallow. Meaning, you know, do I go after a market that has, you know, a hundred million potential customers, uh, but maybe I'm solving only a, a small part of their you know problem for example or do i go after a market that has maybe a much smaller n but for whom i could potentially solve a much deeper more expensive much painful problem right. and and i think healthcare is a good example in which oftentimes the latter or, or, or going deep and narrow into mm -hmm. a specific vertical can sometimes be a more effective go-to-market strategy uh, particularly because you can always once you kind of conquer a specific vertical, you can always expand horizontally uh, to others. And I think there are some uh, great companies that have done this uh, with a fair amount of success. Right. Uh, and, and, and I think maybe the last thing I'll share on healthcare is, you know, achieving product market fit is typically just a lot more complicated and, and multi-step. I alluded mm -hmm. to this earlier where, you know, in our case, we went after clinical market fit first, mm -hmm. get, clinical, get clinical outcomes in a way that's measurable and tangible to an insurance company, uh, and then figure out kind of the business model. And, and that was the playbook we followed. It ended up working quite well. That's not to say that it's going to work for everybody, but just knowing that there are often multiple layers to product market fit, and that oftentimes that means you have to move you have to just accept that it's going to take longer um, to get that validation. But when you do get that validation in healthcare, the products uh, and the end markets are such that they tend to be very sticky and very strategic. So you can often mm -hmm. build a very lasting, durable business where, you know, if you were to run a DCF, you know, you, you kind of project this out way into the future and, and I think you have to, that's an education process. If you're right. trying to talk to a venture capital investor, I think oftentimes uh, you have to sort of show how that's going to play out and, and you have to convince people and you have to obviously understand how that'll play out yourself. Um, but uh, again, it's never, it's never all, it's never all good. Right. There's, there's, there's opportunities uh, to be had here as well as, as challenges. So those are some learnings uh, from my mm -hmm. end in terms of in terms of healthcare. I just would like to highlight something that you said that I've never heard uh, that terminology that I think it's quite good. Uh, we also think about the first stages: founder market fit, then problem solution fit. Then you added the typically we jump into product market fit and then go to market fit, but you have added in between problem solution fit and product market fit the clinical uh, market fit, which I think it's it's kind of a great model of each step we need to prove, and I think that maybe in in healthcare we start thinking about go to market fit very early on. Of course, the go to market fit that I'm talking about the, those steps uh, are much more about scaling up. So are those channels very, very scalable and usually in health tech. And if we narrow even more into Brazil, the options in terms of channels and go-to markets are not uh, a lot. And we, we can discuss um, this more. 
And something that you also said, which is the conversations with investors. I think that any health tech founder uh, might have um, a hard time, especially speaking with generalists uh, or investors that uh, invest in different verticals and don't understand very well health tech and, and uh, nothing against them. We, we understand where they are coming from. And if they have two options, one from, from fintech that they can have a, maybe a faster return and uh, on, on their experience with less risk perceived for them, or even they feel that they can add more value to the entrepreneur because they understand better the industry than they understand um, health tech. Uh, it, it makes me think also of something that uh, Gary Vaynerchuk likes to say, don't try to sell something to someone who don't, doesn't want to buy, right? So uh, save your time and go for the ones who really are able to get what you are saying. Of course, we need all to improve our articulation. I'm the first one that I'm always practicing the, in, the, in the way that I can better communicate. And I always appreciate people like you that communicate so well your, your fellow position, your story, your, your, your narrative. I think it's, it's really important that we, we do our homework, but at the same time, do not spend too much time speaking with the wrong people. Um, so focus much more. Uh, and again, it's it's also an exercise of what you were talking about, the go-to-market and the strategies. It's it's better to have a smaller list of investors that you can, can really have a deep conversation with and create a relationship with um, than a, a huge list of investors that don't have any clue about what you are talking about, made very few investments in healthcare and the probability of investing in your vision uh, is is super small. Do you, do you agree with some of the comments that I just made? Completely agree, and and I'll add to them. So um, it's definitely true that uh, health tech does not necessarily have as broad of a natural investor universe as say fintech. Um, I think there are. Good reasons for that, you know. And you have been in both, by the way, with with Gearbox. So <laughs> you've been in both worlds. Exactly, and I think there are good reasons for that, right? Um, kind of the structural uh, nature of Brazil and Latin America has lended itself to kind of this fintech revolution that we've seen over the past 10, 15 years, and you have this incredible generation of of fintech entrepreneurs that have built just wonderful businesses. Here and and I think there's a lot of structural reasons for that and a lot of just great entrepreneurs and so I think the the barriers or the friction for an investor to buy a, a fintech story is probably lower than than healthcare because there haven't been quite as many healthcare stories in in Latin America but, but what I would say is you know the the objections in healthcare you know sometimes are not necessarily about the sector specifically, but about uh, perceived, real or perceived weaknesses to the business model. So, so let me give an example. Uh, oftentimes in healthcare, uh, the barriers to entry or the real moats are not necessarily clear. So if you're, if you're fundamentally building uh, a labor-based business that is about just hiring uh, clinicians yep. and uh, you know just raising capital behind that and providing essentially fee-for-service care uh, with no real distinct uh, differentiator, then then I would agree that that the investor is correct to say, well, you're not necessarily building something that has any real you know competitive advantage, and there's no reason why another another company couldn't come in and, and take market share. I think where investors start to become more interested is when you can articulate, you know, I, I use the example of clinical market fit, uh, but I think there's other examples, you know, mm -hmm. it, it can articulate, okay, we're building something here that has a structural advantage and is a reason why we're not only the market leader today, but we're going to continue to compound our, our position as a market leader and have a kind of network effect, almost clinical network effect that compounds upon itself um, to strengthen and reinforce our moat over time. And so, you know, for us, uh, we've we've been very focused, and that's why we were so focused on the clinical market fit piece from the beginning, because we invested in our in essentially what is a proprietary clinical methodology. Right. Although we we of course borrow from we stand on the shoulders of giants 
who have published some terrific research in the United States for autism. But we did the hard work of figuring out, okay, what is a more scalable clinical model that can work for this condition? And how can technology be used to make it even better? And, and that's what we were focused on for two years without even selling anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. And that's what's created this um, kind of structural advantage for us that I think we're now seeing is starting to compound upon itself. Um, and so, I, you know, whatever that means for you as an entrepreneur in, in the healthcare space, that it's going to be different for different people. But it's how do you articulate that actual moat, that actual competitive advantage that you're generating? Um, and I think investors un- can understand that and will and will buy that. Um, it's just a matter of articulating that. Yeah, and it's kind of also being able to do what I call the vision reverse engineering exercise, which is uh, opening up the category and, and the way you tell the story. It's it's fascinating because it's it's definitely what you are doing is helping uh, children to have access to quality um, health care, starting with with a very specific condition, a a very specific set of of kids. Uh, And and I like the way you describe the majority didn't were not were not born yet and we will as we if we are able to have an intervention intervention early on we are able to completely change their lives so we're much more in the business not only of improving the life of the ones uh, who didn't have the 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 luck of having access to that uh, quality of care but uh, also avoiding the ones we are, we are burning now to, or ensuring that the ones will be born now to have access to, to what the, the ones who are living today didn't have to. So uh, again, it's important the way the narrative, uh, we, we always talk about the importance of, of the narrative because it's also low now, not only for the conversations with investors, but also for the clarity of vision for ourselves as founders, for our team, for our founding team, for invest, for all stakeholders, it's it's super important that uh, we we are able to articulate what what are we seeing and in in words and uh, and images that they can also feel and think and and, and see. It, it it's a little bit like the analogy that uh, some people use, and I don't know if this will be lost on you, Mike, but uh, it's like skating to where the puck the puck is going. Not mm-hmm. where today, it's to, to borrow kind of a hockey reference. Right. And what I mean by that is, uh, I think you're right. You know, in in Ginny Al's case, we talk a lot about you know these children, this whole generation of kids who are not yet born. There's also an important you know market and regulatory tailwind happening here right now. So, you know, as it stands today, if you compare Brazil to the U.S only one out of every five kids who are uh, who have autism are actually diagnosed in Brazil. And on top of that, last oh. year, uh, on top of that last year, uh, ANS, which is the Brazilian insurance regulator, they uh, had just this complete uh, game-changing uh, rule change for now requiring insurance companies to cover intervention uh, for kids with autism without limits. Hmm. And, and if you combine those two facts, the fact that diagnosis is severely underrepresented compared to what actually is the case, and yeah. this regulatory tailwind now forcing insurance companies to cover this benefit, you can sort of see where this is going. In, in the next five to 10 years, you're going to have just an exponential increase in the amount of uh, need that this population represents and the amount of funding uh, from insurance companies that is going to be behind it. So insurance companies are already feeling this this pressure. They're not able to form partnerships with high quality providers at scale to even reach the demand that they have today. Mm -hmm. And that demand is going to spike by 5x over the next five to 10 years. So um, it's a little bit of, you know, seeing how this market is is likely to evolve right. over the next few years and, and preparing for that today with the investments that we're making. And that's a great point also to find out a market that will that will be created because of the change that is happening uh, and that will grow a lot in the next five 
to 10 years that's that's exercise and, and why a lot of the investors were not able to understand for instance airbnb and all those uh, kind of businesses because the market was not there at the time uh, but they were able to see the market coming and in a certain way that's what you are seeing also with with autism and, and chronic conditions for for children so you you we, we could spend here hours uh unfortunately we have a limit of time in 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 podcasts uh to to be able to engage people uh if not we would stay of course for for much more time uh but uh but anyway i think that there's something very unique about you is that you have been at GA in in the US seeing a lot of um, healthcare companies so you understand the US market the US healthcare market and you understand the Latam and the Brazilian um, healthcare market which you can definitely um, compare and and even I think that's one of the one of the bets of, of Brazilian founders in the future and also American founders is how can how are they able to create kind of a global health tech player that covers the Americas and the world, but let's start with the Americas covering the US and Latin, especially because it's not an easy job as it's much more emerging markets and uh, very sophisticated markets that now we are being seeing niche players. And I think that, that your bet it's also amazing because usually uh, we don't see a lot of healthcare players in, in Brazil that are, have um, kind of a niche or as you said, going deep into a specific segment and solving a very big pain, a very big problem, a very costly problem. So people usually in Brazil prefer to go mainstream, try to serve a lot of people with uh, with a problem, but not such a, a, a such a pain and and such a costly um, problem. Also because of the um, the GDP per capita in a certain way to be able to pay for for those kind of uh, of services. Any final thoughts? I know that this could be an entire podcast just about this the differences between the US. Uh, healthcare system and the Brazilian healthcare system and how startups should adapt um, to to win in both and if it is possible to 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 the same startup to win in both. Uh, I think that we didn't see that uh, yet uh, in in the history of the ecosystem. I think I think um, a lot has been said on trying to build a company in in Latin America. So I'll I'll, I'll try to. I'll try to share something that might not be so, so obvious um, in that sense. Um, you know, people say a lot about bureaucracy and, and needing to be scrappier in Latin America. And I think that's all true. And I think that's all important uh, context. But um, there's, there's a larger point that I think is evident in some of the great companies that have been built in the past, you know, five, 10 years here, which is, um, almost all of the great iconic companies built in Brazil and Latin America. So, you know, Nubank, Kajitas, Hotmart, XP, mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole list of them. Almost all of them are, are sort of uh, truly Latin American companies in, in the sense yeah. of they're not, they're not copycats. They're not something you could just sort of copy and paste from the US or Europe, European mm -hmm. model. They're sort of these just beasts uh, in and unto themselves. And, and I think that's just a credit to the entrepreneurs there who built these franchises who are not just, uh, they don't just dominate one market. They dominate a whole host of markets um, right. because of their just, you know, relentless ability to execute. And, and many of them started out in one specific vertical, you know, take new bank credit cards, right? Um, but they were able to, to not just own that vertical, but expand horizontally to others. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's a little bit of the opportunity with Latin America and, and, and entrepreneurs in, in that, you know, yes, maybe, you know, GDP of Brazil is, you know, 10% of that of the United States. But, you know, you could probably conquer many more verticals in Brazil as an entrepreneur than maybe put in a hyper competitive place like the United States, not to say that Brazil is not competitive because we have a lot of great entrepreneurs. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the radius of the opportunity set is much, is much larger. And now what's exciting is that many of them, many of those same companies are now going out to conquer the world, right? Many of them are, are now leaving Latin America. You know, we have 
you know, Jim Pass, Jim Pass, Jim Pass is in the U.S. Uh, New Bank is all across Latin America. Creditas, I mean, there's a whole list of them. And so um, that's I think that's I think super important. And I think the other point, Mike, is I don't think the success of entrepreneurs needs to depend on the economic or political environment being stable here. And because I think mm-hmm. we know probably won't. Uh, the recent history mm-hmm. still tells us, I mean, I think out of the past nine years, I think we've not been in a recession for maybe one or two of those in the last nine years. <laughs> and obviously we've had lots of political volatility as well. And yet the tech ecosystem continues to chug along and, and grow. And so I think that's right. actually that's actually a great thing in the yeah. sense of, and I think that's that's something for LATAM entrepreneurs to articulate to investors is that, yes, maybe the economic and political environment is not great. Uh, you know, real GDP growth in Brazil is basically flat over the past 10 years, but uh, there's just a huge amount of tech penetration that remains to be achieved here. And so uh, I think it's a, just a fantastic time to build a company in Brazil. I think there's a lot of great entrepreneurs doing it. And uh, it's just, uh, it's just an exciting time to be here. Love it. Kerry, let's go into the last segment uh, of the show where I ask you a quick question and you give me a, uh, a brief uh, answer. Let's start with the free self-reflective uh, questions about your life. So if you'd have the opportunity to meet uh, your younger Kenny and have a coffee with him at the beginning of Genial Care, what advice would you offer to your younger Kenny? When I look back, almost every time I've had a choice um, and, and one choice was perceived as riskier and the other one was perceived as safer. Uh, every time I took the riskier choice, it ended up working out better. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I won't go into detail because I know it's a short answer, but, but I think it that's not because the risky option always works out, but it's because when it doesn't work out, you can always come back and fix it. Right. And and you learn something from it along the way, right? And and I think that's maybe a little bit cliche, but it, it's a still maybe an underrated thing that you know. I think we overrate sometimes the downside of taking a risk, going after something uncertain, because you can always come back if it doesn't if it doesn't work out. And and for me, that's that's been an important learning. Love it's kind of thinking big, uh, think bold, uh, and and go for the stars. What are you the most proud of on your journey so far? I would say two things. One, just um, a bit of what I referred to last question, uh, taking the jump and and deciding not to go to business school uh, mm-hmm. after leaving GA and and going after this this big dream of being an entrepreneur in a, in a place that was unknown to me and and mm-hmm. having to learn language and, and and all that goes with it and and then I think more recently just you know being very intentional about being present in my children's lives you know I've got two kids under under two years old and that's not always wow. easy uh, but so far you know starting in, a company and starting a family uh or not not a fa- the family started before with with your wife but with the kids yeah. as well right <laughs> and so that's obviously been been challenging as a as a father with two young kids but you know so far been been pretty purposeful and being very present with, with them and, and we have our routines and, and so i think i'm i'm, I'm proud of that uh, as well Congratulations. Worst advice ever received? This might be a bit controversial, uh, but I heard a lot of people tell me that I need a co-founder. And I think that's really bad advice. Not because it's bad to have a co-founder. I think it's great to have a Mm -hmm. co-founder. But the problem is having the wrong wrong co-founder. And you see it all the time where you know, 
co-founders are, are, are mashed together or they sort of rush to rush to come together and it ends up not working out and it's being extraordinarily costly uh, and often uh, fatally so for, for the company. And so there's a lot of reasons why co-founder relationships can go wrong. And there's a lot of uh, costs associated with that, uh, whether it's financial, whether it's relational. And, and so it's a very, very fraught decision and it's not one to be made quickly. And so I think there's a lot of kind of cookie cutter advice that's given or, oh, you need a co-founder, especially for especially for a foreigner in Brazil, oh, you need a Brazilian right, co-founder. Brazilian co- <laughs> and I, and, and I, while again, I don't, I don't want to, people get the wrong idea. I think it's great to have the right co-founder and that's the best of both worlds, but yeah. just the, the advice of, oh, you have to find a co-founder. I think that's terrible. Yeah. Right. Well, we, 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 again, we could stay here for another 10 to 20 minutes just to double down on, on this point. I think it's spot on a uh, great one and we need to do a, a new pod on this. So resources, favorite, uh, book, business, non-business. This is more about getting to know you. One, one book that people might not know that was very influential for me is called Smart People Should Build Things. Mm-hmm. Um, people that might know Andrew Yang, he, he ran for president in the United States okay. uh, a few years back. He's the founder um, of an organization called Venture for America, sort of a, a play on Teach for America. And you know those books that you read that kind of gets you at the exact point in your life where you sort of Mm-hmm. You know, are seeking that out and, and that was the case for me and it's it the book is sort of a manifesto for you know would-be founders who maybe are a little bit disillusioned with what they're doing uh maybe they're working in consulting or banking or or what right. have you and it's just i think the title says it all smart people should build things mm-hmm. and uh highly recommend it it's a it's a short read, uh, but it was uh, pretty inspirational uh, for me. I've read it. You know, this is probably close to ten years ago that I that I read Love it. Highly recommend it. Thank you for sharing. Favorite movie or series? I was a big fan of early House of Cards. <laughs> Back, with, uh, you know, I think you know, seasons one through five or something was was great. I mean, we. My wife and I have binged that several times. Um, and Game of Thrones too, I think is a, is is an easy one. Love it. And finally, your favorite podcast, uh, excluding this one. <laughs> it depends on the moment. I kind of cycle through them uh, depending on the mood. But I mean, here. right right now, I'm I'm actually a big fan of the All In podcast, which has mm-hmm. become very popular, and uh, yeah. I think it's. I think it's very right. high quality, high quality banter. I, I don't always agree with what the hosts say, but I, I always learn something. Love it. Great addition to our resource uh, list from our guests. Kenny, such a pleasure to have you on the show. There are some topics that we we could have the opportunity to double down the, the co-founder stuff and the differences between the US and the Latin healthcare uh ecosystems but anyway that's a good excuse to have you back to to talk more about those topics and to share the progress that you are doing with uh, genial care thanks so much for making the time absolutely look forward to it thanks mike and to our community we keep bringing you the best of the best on your journey from zero to one one to ten and ten to one hundred see you soon and keep scaling